Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that relishes all sorts of information and experiences in the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the New South Wales government raises over $7 million with mobile phone detection cameras. We have two interviews. Brian Smith has bought a cargo electric pushbike. He is not diversifying from a highly respected transport planner to Uber Eats but his story is still important. We hear how one company is adjusting to lockdowns and what it means for transport in general. And in Quirky News, we have the first in a series on what master artist pictures should you have on the side of your van. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And you can get snippets on our Facebook page, Overdrive City One Word, including some recent pictures of art on vans. But now let's get the program going. First, the news. New South Wales has implemented technology to catch people using their mobile phone while driving. Is it working? Mobile phone detection cameras in New South Wales have raised $7.1 million in fines in the two months since they were introduced. 11,800 people were caught in March, but this dropped by nearly 24% in April. So they are catching offenders, but April has also seen a significant drop in traffic. So it seems the message is not getting through as strongly as it might. Detection cameras are not the only way you can get caught. In the same period, some 1,200 fines were issued by Highway Patrol or General Duty police officers. The government aims to get over 300 of these cameras installed, but they won't tell you where they are. When times are good, we often forget about the need for in-depth research. COVID-19 should make us all think again. A survey by Sydney University's Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies indicates that over 80% of respondents are concerned about hygiene on public transport. Professor David Hensher, Director of ITLS, said that COVID-19 has created disruption to travel and activities unlike anything we've ever seen since World War II. Before the pandemic, weekly household trips averaged 24 per week, but dropped by over 50% to 11 each week. And the number of people working zero days from home, unsurprisingly, fell from 71 to 39% over the two-week period, while the number of people working five days a week from home increased from 7 to 30%. Before the pandemic, the factors we considered when choosing transport were usually time, distance and cost. Now those are out the window. The new technologies that were meant to pave the way to a better future, such as autonomous vehicles, ride-sharing, dial-up public transport services, are facing a new challenge. Just how clean are they? This was always an issue with dirt and rubbish, but now there is the life-threatening possibility of COVID-19. 
Mobility as a service has, as its basis, less personal ownership and more vehicle sharing. At times it may even include a bicycle. Who's going to disinfect them each time? And the new technologies need money to develop. Reports suggest that some venture capital firms are having doubts that autonomous vehicles and their enabling technologies are worth the risk in the short to medium term. The freight transport industry usually has a rough and tough image, but COVID-19 has raised the profile of drivers and other employees. Our support must include vehicle features as well. We've been testing the Renault Master large delivery van. One of the great safety features is that they have a full barrier between the cargo area and the front driver and passengers. This not only stops items being thrown forward as dangerous projectiles, but the immediately obvious benefit was that it made the cabin much quieter. Cargo areas, especially when empty, act like echo chambers, creating a tiring, even distressing drumming noise for the driver. We had the six-speed manual, but again, its ease of operation reduced stress. There's been an ongoing push to make SUVs and utes more comfortable, but fleet managers are increasingly aware of comfort for their essential workers. Environmentally friendly vehicles are now appearing in a range of functions. Some emergency services are showing the way. The Tokyo Fire Department now has an all-electric powered ambulance based on the Nissan NV400 zero-emission vehicle. As well as reducing local pollution, the noise and vibration levels are significantly lower in comparison with a traditional petrol-powered vehicle, helping reduce negative impacts on patients as well as on staff handling sensitive equipment. The ambulance can also turn into a mobile source of power, in case of a power outage or natural disaster. The fire department has used Nissan Leaf sedans as a power source in the past. The ambulance weighs 3.5 tonnes and can take seven passengers and crew. It has a modest power output of 55 kilowatts and maximum torque of 220 newton metres. And that has been the news. Brian Smith is the technical executive for the large engineering company, WSP, Engineering and Planning Company. And he has uh, completed jobs throughout the world and is an expert in particularly in public transport and other issues. He's just bought a second vehicle and uh, its significance should be looked at closely. So he joins us on the line now. Brian, can you describe to us what your second vehicle is? Hello, David. My second vehicle is a bicycle, but it's no ordinary bicycle. Uh, we've often spoken, I think, about you know, our views about the electric bicycle and how really it's, the, it's one of the futures of transport in, in uh, the Western world is the rising importance of the electric bike to unlock sort of uh, access. Mine's a, an e-bike, but it's an e-cargo bike, David. It's kind of like a backwards tricycle in that it's got two wheels at the front and one at the rear and it's got a large box on the front and it's got an electric motor that uh, and a big battery that drives it along helps you to pedal it's sort of 36 kilograms and the box in front can hold a couple of kids or 80 kilograms of of shopping and and dinghy sailing equipment and things like that and i picked it up on saturday you pedal it, but you've got electric power to help. How strong is that electric power? Can it take you up a hill? 
Yeah, for sure. The bike has gears. Uh, and it's also got a 250-watt electric motor on it, which, which helps you as you pedal. It's called a, a mid-drive, so the, the motor is sort of in below the hub where you pedal. And so as you pedal and, and press against the pedals, the, the electric motor comes in gradually to help you. And so it doesn't replace pedaling. It's not really one of those things where you have a throttle and you just ride it like a motorbike. You have to keep pedaling. Why would you get it? What are you going to use it for? We noticed that we've got one vehicle, one car, and we, we noticed that we tend to do a lot of short trips that really taking the car is a bit of a waste. And so, you know, we have the kind of trips that many families would have where, you know, the young son is being taken to swimming lessons. And it's just beyond easy walking distance. It's really too close to drive. Or my eldest daughter teaches sailing at our local sailing club, and it's some steep hills, and it's probably five-minute drive and a 10-minute bicycle trip. So these short shopping trips and particularly shopping trips where you might be lugging home a couple of bags of groceries, you can put into the, the, the bin in the front and ride it home and basically not have to buy a second car effectively or to use the car for trips that are really you know, not long enough to justify you know, using a private car. 25% of trips in Sydney are 2Ks or under. 50% of trips are 5Ks or under. It's a reality where you, you say, using your circumstances, that a lot of trips are not that particularly long. It's got some clever features. We were talking about it as to perhaps you could put in the front there your wheelie bin and take it up a street drive now how what's what's an arrangement that could help me do that do i have to pedal it up well you could you also have uh, a walking motor where um you can use the electric motor to assist you in in pushing it up a hill so you can walk alongside it press down the throttle button or or go to a mode on the on the controller and and have it basically carry it up or even tow it up Will it change the infrastructure we need for bikes? I should imagine that it may not be welcome on a bikeway that's ridden or used mainly by alpha male bike riders. <laughs> Possibly. It's it's fairly wide, David. It's uh, it's almost a metre wide because you know, you've got two, two wheels across the front and this bin and it's uh, it's about two metres long. So it's, it's not small and it you have to kind of think about where you're going to put this thing. So you can't just ride up a pram ramp. You have to have a decent sort of driveway. You can't bunny hop it. You, you know, it takes up a probably half a foot normal footpath. So it's not something you can easily you know, sort of park on the footpath about blocking people. I don't think you could fit it into most lifts or through some doors of or shopping uh, car park areas. So on several of the cycle tracks that I rode along, um, some of the bollards were only about a metre wide. So, you know, I had sort of five centimetres on each side as I cycled through. You don't have to pay rego or insurance or there's probably not a, nearly as much maintenance cost that may be with a car, yet you've got to pay a fair bit up front. What are they worth? It's between six and $7,000, depending on how you accessorise the bike. Still, I think, very good value for what it is and as you say you're not paying any registration uh, we've got a whole mess of solar panels so potentially the sun will charge this thing uh, and look we as we use it we'll see um, the extent to which it gets used we uh, have the ability to record a lot of data 
you know, from the control system and using things like Strava to see just how efficient it is. But I guess the, the proof of the pudding, David, is going to be in the eating in terms of what this unlocks for us as a family, I suppose, rather than reliance on the car. The great thing is my daughter who doesn't have a driving license can use this. And young Bob loves it, doesn't he? Well, yeah. So, I mean, 80 kilos in the front, two kids can fit in there. Six-year-old went for a ride with me on Sunday and uh, he quite enjoys it. It's got some safety straps, so he's strapped in. There's some little protectors to protect his fingers from going into the the, uh, spokes of the wheels and he sits out the front. He has a grand view and we sort of steam up and down hills and around corners. It's uh, great fun. A lot of thought has gone into the details of it too, as you say, protection from little hands that might get into spokes and so on. I, I think it's wonderful. An Australian developed and manufactured in, a, in his garage there, I think, isn't it? And it's called Cranky with a K. Cranky with a K, K-R-A-N-K-I-E. And the bike we've got is called the Rip E1 cargo bike. Brian, lovely to uh, chat and an evolving area, I think. It's very easy to judge it based on what we think at the moment, yet the world is changing, and I think you're embracing that in a very interesting way. Thanks again. Catch up soon. You're listening to Overdrive. Emmanuel Natalizio is the Managing Director of TrafficWorks, a consultancy providing specialist traffic engineering advice to public and private clients. They are involved in many things such as traffic design, traffic signal plans, public lighting, signs and line marking, active transport and more. Projects are still getting designed and other companies are taking those designs and building and doing maintenance work while traffic volumes are low. So TrafficWorks has managed to maintain its 48 people workforce. The big issue is how do we take what we've learnt during this lockdown period and apply the best methods as we start to lessen the restrictions? I spoke to Emmanuel recently. Are you seeing moving within the broader transport area? What sort of reflections do you think are coming up now because of COVID-19? Well, I think it's really challenging the way we do our work. Yeah, this is something we're grappling with a fair bit as directors of the company. I mean, for the most part, we've been able to transition to a working-from-home arrangement and things have got done and productivity has been as good as it has been before. So it starts to challenge just how you go about things from a work perspective. So I think that's one of the reflections. It's going to be interesting how well that stacks up over time and that's sort of my underlying concern that I suppose we've been able to to this stage because everyone's sort of invested in what the the issue and the problem is because obviously everyone wants to keep safe and healthy so they've obviously understanding of why they need to do this i mean over time it's going to suit some people more than others and then it's understanding how that transition is going to work and how it's going to work if some people are office space and some people aren't in the office i mean and depending on on I suppose, the seniority of that person and how that would work with the management of teams and potentially then as you hire new people in the future. Some of your employees are enjoying not commuting? Well, yes. The unfortunate, and Sydney, no doubt's the same, you know, with such a large metropolitan area, you naturally draw people from right across the whole metropolitan area and some have got the fortunate travel time of five to ten minutes to get to the office while others have got 50 plus minutes travel time that's each way 
But then I, I definitely get the feedback that you miss out on that day-to-day communication with staff. Yes, you can Skype people, you can pick up a mobile phone, but it's just not as informal as just walking by someone's desk and saying a quick hello and how you're doing. We are mucking in at the moment to survive, but you as a manager must be thinking about the long-term ongoing relationships. Perhaps Mm. we might see people not totally telecommuting, but perhaps one or two days a week. Mm. Do you think that that sort of adaptability will come into the future? Yeah, I think that's where we we look like we will need to be going, yes. I think uh, more people now that they've got an understanding of how it can work for them will probably be wanting that sort of flexibility. That may, in the end, give the, the right balance of releasing that stress on the home environment in terms of travel time and other commitments and being able to get that balance right, as well as being in the office for those number of days and, and maintaining and still developing those relationships with your co-workers. And I think what it does now is just further demonstrates that trust relationship. And it's very important in the business to to have that trust relationship because it works both ways. If you trust your employees, then they feel invested in the business and and, want to do well for the business. Is this an opportunity where both management and staff can express how they want it to work, not just as a personal suite to make things, you know, that suits one side rather than the other, but how it might suit both sides together if we work on it together. Mm. Yeah, they're the conversations we need to start having now, especially as some of these restrictions start. The opportunity starts to present itself for some people to come back to work. We need to have those conversations about, yeah, where is that balance and, and how would that balance best work? both for managers, both for um, uh, employees as well. Yeah, with a workforce of up to 48, you never have one sort of rule that fits all. There's a lot of diversity and, and diversity in where people are in their both their career and in their life situation. So you have to have a degree of flexibility to sort of accommodate all those needs now where I suppose traditionally none of those things would probably ever thought of or need to be considered those those spaces said if you want to work here it's nine to five you have to arrive here at nine and leave here at five and and uh no other questions asked well i think these days the expectations of you know the current workforce particularly the younger workforces i mean they're prepared to work at night for you (laughs) if they know if they had that flexibility if they had to take one or two hours during the day to catch up on a personal thing so demonstrating that you know it's not all about people you know not abusing the situation people are showing that they're very responsible and, and, and capable of taking on that responsibility and managing their workload and their time how important is it then that everyone embraces the fact that it's not an all or nothing solution and it's not a one size fit all it's important that everyone's on that same level mm, yeah absolutely so yeah, and that's going to be the key. And I suppose the key part of that too is is how people perceive the risk with the COVID-19. You know, and that's what we found with our staff as well. There's different levels of how people perceive that risk and how people want that risk to be managed. I mean, all things being equal, yes, we can get that balance. We can work on that balance. But I suppose there may be still some individuals despite doing as much as we possibly can to minimise the risk that just feel that that risk 
has it been minimised enough for, for them and their personal or family situation? And then on those grounds, wish to continue to work from home for a longer period. So that's going to be challenging because we just don't know what the answer to that is and how long that might last. Emmanuel, thank you very much for your time. No worries, David. No, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And that was Emmanuel Natalicio, who is the Managing Director of the Traffic Works Consultancy, who are experts in traffic engineering. You're listening to Overdrive. This week I've been driving a very big van, the Renault Master, and it has a wonderfully big, flat, white side to it. And our artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver, suggested that it would be ideal as a big canvas on which to put a painting. And our traffic engineering expert, Alan Finlay, said that reminded him, of course, of the panel van era. I spoke to a few people in lockdown on typical internet quality communications. Not good. Panel van paintings were hardly elegant or upmarket. Our Brian Smith described why panel van art is so low-brow. My memory of panel van art was making it absolutely clear why they were called sin bins. That sort of kitsch, airbrushed, young male fantasy, bosomy women and muscly men and tigers and wolves and swords and stuff. So pretty much always followed a sort of a pattern, didn't it, David? It was They were kitschy to start with. No one seemed to, to want beautiful art on their panel vans. It was more wanting this very sort of uh, comic book fantasy image, I guess, to represent the person that the pimply apprentice thought they were in their dreams or something. Conan the Barbarian. Yes, that's it, exactly. There were some that tried to do a sun setting, but it was sort of in the style of a person that did that painting, then went on and painted four dogs playing poker. It had that very stereotypical overdone colours and that to it that lacked subtlety, that lacked depth, that lacked emotion even. It was just big, bad and bold. If there was a nice beach sunset scene, it would always involve a young woman in a bikini nearby. Yes, of course. So, if you have such a big canvas, why not get a painting in the style of a Grand Master? Our resident literary expert, Genevieve Dillon, who also infuses art and the classics into our research, noted that with such a large canvas and being a Renault master, a French master, as Errol pointed out, the style of the artist was obvious. So the artist is Louis David. I think his claim to fame really is that he was an artist who enjoyed painting grand scenes and demanded a large canvas for such scenes. And he seemed to have fallen in favour with Napoleon, I think partly because he had painted a portrait of Napoleon on a very large and magnificent stallion, and Napoleon was so flattered by the profile that David had managed to give him on this said horse that he hired him to paint his coronation. Napoleon crosses the Alps, I think it is, a nice white horse too, rearing on its rear that's, legs that's with right. Napoleon, pointing to the future. He actually was politically very correct, wasn't he? Because he got on very well with Robespierre until mm-hmm. he fell out of favour, and I think the artist was put in jail, but then he got on side with Napoleon. The guy's not without his 
networking talents. Similar guys. to Napoleon's wife, who managed to do exactly the same thing. Mm, I think his coronation painting was 20 foot by 33 feet. It had a lot of people in it, but that was so big that they were nearly life-size. I believe that he had one problem, and that was that by the time he'd finished it and got it out, Napoleon had remarried. Yes, yes. Now, if you have such grand thing, do you think then that what we might get is if the Queen of England ever moves out of a horse-drawn carriage or the Bentley and goes into something far more practical, like a van, you would need a painter like what is Louis David uh, to be able to put something on the side. It's that sort of grand picture, isn't it? Well, I'm assuming that the French feel justifiably proud of their creation in the Renault, so they should be a little <laughs> grand masterpiece on the side to celebrate their achievement. A painter like that should perhaps paint the side of political buses. And yes, as they go absolutely. It'd certainly be interesting. The bus itself might be out of service by the time David had finished, but yes. <laughs> so might the political party. And so indeed, yes. From the Australian perspective, I thought that a Jackson Pollock would suit, particularly Blue Poles, which is in the style of abstract impressionism. The Whitlam government paid $1.3 million for blue poles in 1973. Now, art historian Patrick McCoy said, never had such a painting moved and disturbed the Australian public. The opposition pandered, even though as conservatives they supposedly appreciated art. The then government would have the last laugh as estimates of the painting's present value vary widely, but from $100 million to $350 million. Our Brian thinks that the star would suit a van in the Australian conditions. For sure, David. I think Pollock fits nicely with the idea of the the van being driven through puddles and, and mud and, and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> splashed up and down it. The risk is so if someone washes it and destroys the value. <laughs> In the weeks to come, we will have a few more suggestions of the artistic style for paintings on the side of cars. The Nissan Cube screams out for having a Picasso, and the Nissan Picasso is well suited for definitely not having a Picasso. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Emmanuel Natalicio, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City, one word. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.